Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) All right. Hello, listeners. We're starting a new series today called Subversive Blondes. Why Subversive Blondes? What is this all about? I've had to really look into my heart and see if I just thought it was a cool name or if this is really about something. Uh, We're focusing on... Hollywood Blondes, Uh, particularly sort of the centerpiece of this is going to be Marilyn Monroe. We're going to start with her because she really is the greatest icon of the comedic blonde, if you will, and sexy blonde. And then uh, she had many precursors and descendants of her style and her approach and really had to consider what makes these women subversive. First of all, the insistence by culture that they're stupid. The dumb blonde was an, a particular icon of the, well, really, of the 20th century. And women weren't allowed to be sexy, beautiful, and intelligent. It was uh, perhaps too threatening, but for whatever reason, the two didn't go together. My point of view is that from reading the lives of these women and looking at them, they all were intelligent women, some even brilliant, some even genius IQ women, and they had a certain canny, scrappy, strategic way of maneuvering through Hollywood and through the world so that they could claim their power, even without maybe the establishment realizing how they were doing it. They had to fight tooth and nail every step of the way, and a lot of them were pulled under because of it. So I guess I see them as being subversive in that as women, we can look at the struggle that they went through and the steps they took for their own fulfillment and be grateful to them for the work they did and the path they blazed and also appreciate how, you know, a woman can be so many different things. Yeah, the multifacetedness of some of these iconic people like Marilyn Monroe is going to be our number one that we talk about, and she is so visually ingrained in the culture through pictures and references in movies and cameos and things like that. We delved into a lot of her movies and there's just so much going on. We'll also be talking about, as I said, some of the people who led up to her, such as Lana Turner, Jean Harlow, those blondes, and then uh, people who followed her and emulated her and also mimicked her for comedic purposes and just simply to pick up the cudgel, shall we say. For profit, yeah. yeah, For profit in order to, because there was a market for this this type, such as Jane Mansfield being the most famous one. Uh, But we're going to start with Marilyn because she's at the center of it all. First of all, just give you just a little bit the facts about her life. She was actually born... Norma Jean Mortensen. And a lot of people think she was born Norma Jean Baker because that's uh. been kind of the the myth around her. But that was actually not her birth name. is Mortensen, hmm. who was, uh, well, we won't get into her, her father right now. And she was born on June 1st, uh, 1926. She died August 5th, 1962. So she was only 36 years old when she passed and she passed because of a barbiturate overdose. Her death is, to this day, uh, a matter of great uh, controversy. So there are many, many theories about it. I'll give you my probably very uneducated theory about what I think it is, but there are a lot of books out there that uh, say that she was assassinated or she was killed by medical malpractice, that she committed suicide, that it was an accident. I think, you know, all of those have been examined in many different books that you can read. And I have listed a few books in the show notes, certainly not at all comprehensive because there are so many books of Marilyn. So anyway, uh, where would you like to start, Zoe? Would you like to talk a little bit about your first exposure to Marilyn or... Sure. That tends to be kind of the way we we introduce these subjects. Yeah, kind of the influence. The reason I suggest that is because I saw Marilyn Monroe. First time I saw her was in Some Like It Hot on a camping trip. You know, my dad was watching it on a little tiny black and white color TV. This (laughs) would have probably been in late 60s. So the movie was not all that old. Marilyn had passed by then. But uh, my father's watching this funny, sexy movie and I was very disturbed by it. It was was over my head. It was too sophisticated for me. I didn't understand the Marilyn character, so I found her intimidating, and Mm -hmm. I found her her overt sexuality and that whole uh, manner that she had in in the film to be, in a way, almost distasteful to me as the young Catholic girl who did not have much exposure or information about sexuality. And I was just too young and unsophisticated for it. So that was my first exposure. And of course, she became, as I grew up into the 1980s and was a young woman, she became a revitalized icon. 
You should always been around, but all of a sudden this new generation of women, particularly led by Madonna, the singer Madonna, who mimicked her, who reproduced her look to a certain extent and reproduced a lot of her postures and her clothing as well as her, and her hair, her platinum blonde tresses. And so that led to a revitalization of the uh, Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe legend. And then there was Elton John who wrote a song about her, Candle in the Wind. Mm. that he later readapted for Princess Diana. But originally that was written about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's a lovely song. And I think it, to a certain extent, does describe part of her personality and her fate as being too uh, easily blown out, if you will. And so, you know, over time, I didn't really give much thought to her. She was just kind of that sex pot. I certainly was raised with that patriarchal point of view about women because you don't think about it. You just learn that this is what it is. And it was really only as I came into my middle age and we got into the 1990s and 2000s that I began to understand her in a different way and value her in a different way. And I introduced her to you, I believe. I'm sure that growing up, I was inundated with flashes of her, images of her, references to her. I don't even remember like how young I was when I knew who Marilyn Monroe was. That's kind of, that was all I knew, like sex icon. And I think maybe Some Like It Hot was the first movie that I saw her in. I think it was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. You think? I'll tell you what my memory is, and it could be wrong. I remember you pretty young, probably middle school. So I thought, well, you need to really get on the Marilyn Monroe train because she's got some great movies. And so we were playing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I remember this. And there was a scene where she's talking to the father and... He says something like, whoa, you're smart. And she said, in fact, I think I have this quote written down because Marilyn actually came up with it. I didn't realize this. She actually came up with this line. I think it was pretty, pretty witty. Oh, that's right. Uh, the, the man says to her, because she's all buxom and blonde and acts sort of waifish, I thought you were dumb. And she replies, I can be smart when it's important but most men don't like it. And that was actually a line that she inserted herself. And I'm certain it was that scene because you turned to me with this real like energetic surprise and said, she's funny. <laughs> and I, I, that really took me aback mm-hmm. in a way because your initial immediate perspective on her was to notice her the wit and the delivery mm-hmm. that her skill as a comedian, her skill up there on screen, not her looks. Not that I'm sure you weren't seeing them, but you know what I mean. Your, your sure, yeah. real emotional reaction was to, to her talent. I think probably you're right. And gentlemen prefer blondes. It's a musical. It's really fun. And you were probably like, you know, middle school Zoe will be entertained by this. And, yeah. and we watched it. Coming into the movie, I just had this image and expectation that she would be a dumb blonde and <laughs> sexy. And that that was funny, but not that she was funny. That really struck me. There's, there certainly has been a cultural, a cultural resistance. Miasma. Yeah. Yeah. uh, To the idea that like women are funny comedians and have exude like a type of humor that hits the same way that men's humor does or something like that. And sure, her humor is very specific to herself and it's very feminine, but yeah, I was just so surprised to see that come through so strongly. And, And in the the things you see her in, like, I don't know, like the Simpsons cameo, that is the joke is that she's sexy and dumb. To go from like this very flat, satirical idea of who she might be to seeing a real, the real person and... The artist. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I don't think we were really necessarily seeing the real person on screen. As sure. You, you don't usually, but yeah, the real artist, the real, the real creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she definitely was tagged with that. Really, and th- this line says it all. Men did not like her to be smart. They wanted her to be unthreatening, available. And I think herein we are coming to the core of what I think is subver- subversive. She was able to project an image to men, because they're the ones who are running the show at the time for the most part, of being a- sexually available, of being soft, of being adoring, non-judgmental, all the things that certain kinds of men, sorry, men, I don't, there are many. We're going to make a lot of generalizations. Yeah, we're going to make a lot of generalizations. And this is not about all men in any way, shape, or form. It's sort of more that block of men who were running things Mm -hmm. and and wanted power. Sort of the power-hungry men. Systematically men. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But not men all 
individually. Sure. So I, I want to say that right up front. I also want to say we, I guess I should have said this at the very top, we will be talking a lot about sexuality. We will be uh, discussing child abuse and sexual abuse to some extent. We're not going to go into specific details or anything that would be graphic at all, but we will be mentioning those topics and talking about the impact that they had on Marilyn in particular. So just want to warn you about that that's coming up and this is not, you know, for kids. Right. And if that's upsetting, then you can skip ahead. And uh, I think, I mean, we'll include similar warnings anytime, but part two should probably be pretty, you know, safe. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> exactly. Once we get through that. But anyway, uh, therein lies, I think, the core of this subversiveness because she is able to create this package that is so palatable and even de- deeply desirable for the world. At the same time, underneath, she's intelligent, she's cagey, she's strategic. And she's able to bring those two together to forward her agenda to have become the leading box office star in the world from beginnings where she was a poverty-stricken, abandoned child. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah, just a, a child who barely had shoes to this pinnacle of absolute success. Now... There was the other side as well, which is very sad of, of her dysfunction and her pain and her da- the damage that she she uh, experienced through her childhood, which we will we will touch on that and talk about it. But I really want to talk about the the steel core mm-hmm. of her ambition and determination to become something, and she she had the determination to become a respected artist a respected person of merit. And what is so interesting is she eventually achieved that, but mostly after she died. But her standing up in front of the world as her own creation, whatever anybody thought that they may have contributed, she created the Marilyn Monroe character. It was very subversive for that time. And if you look at a lot of the other women who were in film at the time, there are other strong women, such as maybe a Barbara Stanwyck, who were able to get through... But none of them were the star that Marilyn became, the success that Marilyn became. Most of the women at the time were boring, awful parts, no matter how talented they were. Yeah, we're talking about the roles here. The roles, sorry. Yeah, awful parts that they played. They all had to, you know, sleep around for them. So Marilyn Marilyn slept around for her parts, too, frankly. Yeah, but... But she succeeded. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's incredible. And there's kind of a sense that, like... Again, uh, just that she exists as iconography and that somehow just because she was that way that like she fills this uh, cultural image and, and it happened to her or something like that or that she just she just was that. But no, like anybody who's ever tried to act in any capacity at all knows that it's incredibly hard. So she did all of that work. She was a crea- yeah, she was a creative force and not given the credit for her own creation. Like you said, people just think, oh, she, that's who she was. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't who she was. It was something that she created out of who she was. So Marilyn, Marilyn was uh, born in uh, June 1st, uh, 1926. She was uh, the only child of her mother. She never knew who her father was. Her mother had been married a number of times and had lovers and so forth. And later on, Marilyn kind of did some investigation and kind of figured out who might be her father out of a couple of different people, but no one was really ever sure. And so she always lived with the unknown. She was born with the name... Did I ever say this? Yes. Okay, all right. Well, maybe you can just cut... I don't know. I'm going to say it again. She was born with the name Norma Jean Mortensen, not Norma Jean Baker, as most people think it's sort of the urban legend I guess she did go by Norma Jean Baker uh, off and on occasionally in her life but Norma Jean Mortensen was her name until she got married for the first time her mother's name was Gladys maiden name Monroe Gladys Monroe first husband Baker second husband Mortensen Mm. but neither of those men were uh, Norma Jean's father and I will be calling her Norma Jean until she becomes Marilyn Monroe because to help us remember this was the real person, was Norma Jean. And as I said, her mother's name was Gladys. Gladys was, well, there are varying opinions about Gladys's mental state. She definitely was not stable. Uh, there was substance abuse. There was poverty. There was instability. Now, she may have been mentally ill. She may have been physically ill with the mental illness coming from that. There are a number of different theories, but 
to my mind, she definitely, her behavior, if we just look at that, is emblematic of mental illness. So that's what I'm going to go with. I don't know for sure. So anyway, Marilyn, when Marilyn was born, uh, within two weeks of being born, she was put into a foster home. Her mother couldn't care for her and put her out to a foster home where Marilyn lived until she was seven. And, and this home was very strict and they were religiously uh, like evangelical uh, re- religiosity that went on the home constant certainly not sex positive home right anti fun very very serious spending a lot of time looking for sin and things that people did wrong and every time you did something wrong no matter what it was there was a lot of punishment involved so you know you've got a young child young children do things wrong all the time that's what young children do Right. Because they don't know any better, and punishing them is very damaging, uh, the kind of punishment that Norma Jean got. It sounds like she had enough to eat. She had clothes to wear. I mean, it, there was no extras. It was no extravagance, but she was reasonably taken care of. Now, later in life, she told a lot of stories about some horrors and how poverty and didn't have food and clothes. And... The evidence doesn't seem to bear that out. It was She was a bit of a mythomaniac as she got older and liked to build um, more and more pathetic scenarios mm-hmm. so people would feel sympathetic to her. It was one of her strategies mm-hmm. for getting what she wanted, for uh, getting help, for getting sympathy, and it, it's just what she did. So anyway, her mother would come and visit occasionally. This redheaded woman would come and visit. And Norma Jean didn't even really know who she was. So one day when she was little, her foster mother, she called her mom. And the woman said, I'm not your mother. And that was news to Norma Jean. Wow. Yeah, she, I can't imagine. Yeah, she thought that these people were her parents. And when she was seven, her mother uh, finally decided to come and thought she could take care of her. And I think in, in all good intention. And at the time, Norma Jean had this little dog that she loved called Tippy. And it was her little dog that followed her around everywhere. And apparently the neighbor got mad at Tippy. And there are varying reports. Norma Jean says that she, it was in front of her. She saw it. And he shot her dog because it was barking or something. Aww. Yeah, very sad. It's so cruel. Very cruel. Can you imagine? I mean, she was already pretty fragile. And her mother, her real mother, went pretty ballistic and pulled her out of the foster home. It wasn't the foster parents' fault, but yeah. you know, they were living next to this guy. And she got a house. And at the time, she was working as a cutter in the editing rooms at the Hollywood Studios. Oh. So there was this real connection to Hollywood. And I should have said they lived in Hollywood. Okay. So... Yeah, I yeah. didn't. Sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, uh, should have mentioned that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Should have mentioned it. So her mother was working in the cutting rooms in in a Hollywood studio. So she was seeing images on these films all day long. And what kind of what happened to her was that she was still pretty unstable, but she was trying. And they had a house, and they had a, a piano that was painted white that she got. And she went to work every day. And she had this really good friend at the studio who became like her best friend for long time. Norma Jean's mother, Gladys, a lot of G names here, Yeah, uh, had a best friend she met called Grace. And Grace and she were like tight, really close friends, and they were both movie crazy. And what they did is they started grooming Norma Jean to be Marilyn Monroe, essentially. Hmm. Uh, first of all, Norma Jean was named after Norma Talmadge, who was a big movie star at the time she was born. So she's named after a movie star. And then by the time Norma Jean was seven and was growing up, Jean Harlow, who who we will be talking about in a future episode, became a big star. And she was sort of, she was like that early sex pot. She just exuded blatant sexuality. She didn't wear a bra under her clinging you know, or any underwear, you know, under clinging satin gowns. But it was it was a very alive, earthy kind of real woman. You know, she wasn't Ro- ethereal robust, at all. Yeah. yeah, very robust woman. And Norma Jean's mother and Grace were besotted with Jean Harlow. And even though Norma Jean's middle name didn't come from Jean Harlow, she was told that it did. Uh-huh. And she was told that she was going to be just like that. That was who she was going to grow up to be. She could be Jean Harlow. She was told that over and over and over. And I guess she was dressed up very fancy and pretty and and paraded around. And someone who worked with 
Gladys said that she would bring her daughter into the into the cutting room to work and introduce her around and say, oh, this is my daughter, Norma Jean. Isn't she beautiful? Norma Jean, walk away and then come back and show them how nice, you know, you can oh, well. walk. And, and she was just fed this over and over and over again to, to an extent that it became very confusing for her because she'd come from this really harsh religious background where... All that was verboten. She couldn't go to movies. She couldn't music, drinking, smoking, nothing. And all of a sudden, she's living with this woman who's drinking, smoking, going to movies, works in the movies, telling her she can be sexy, right. wearing makeup, you know. And even when she was really young, Grace and Gladys were helping her do makeup and teaching her how to do it right. And so not only was she groomed by society, as all women were, and I remember this myself, this this attitude both spoken and unspoken that your looks are the most important thing that uh, being beautiful and graceful and attractive in some way was the way to be acceptable this was you know many decades before I was even a kid so it was very very intense at that time and then to have these two women just reinforcing it almost like I don't think she got a chance to really know who she was because she was just going to be Norm uh, Jean Harlow, huh? Yeah, I can't imagine how star. confusing is the right word. Probably this, all these mixed feelings about like, is this sinful? Am I bad? Like, is it my environment so lax now? Do I act out? Like, what do I do? <laughs> right, right, and and desperately I want my mom's affection, and she's the only person I have right now. <laughs> right, yeah, and she wanted to find her father, and apparently her mother had some picture of a man with a mustache on the wall and Norma Jean said, is that my father? And I think she said, no, it was very confusing for her, but she, she dreamed it was her father and it looked like Clark Gable. So she would dream that Clark Gable was her father. <laughs> and it was something that she longed for and she would have fantasies and everything about him being her father and, you know, taking her away and loving her and so forth. So as Norma Jean grew up and became Marilyn Monroe, she told a lot of stories about beatings and, uh, starvation and and being locked up and horrors that happened to her in her foster homes and there isn't any evidence that all that kind of stuff happened basically it sounds like she was well fed and she had not a lot uh, not an abundance of clothing but she was clothed and even though it was poverty clothing if you will never maybe quite fit they were hand-me-downs she picked up a lot of these stories from a young woman who ended up being sort of her not really even a maybe like a call her foster sister mm. and she heard a lot of these stories from her and she adopted them again to create more drama this was a way to get attention to get people focused on you which was number one in her life was to have attention because she was so neglected that this became her compensation and then also in order to get people to feel sorry for and do stuff for her, and they did. You know, she would get financial support, she would get places to live, and she got a lot of other kinds of attention and help, like with her career. And so she used this as part of her strategy. But that is not to say, I don't want to downplay the difficulty, the instability, and what really did happen in her childhood was plenty to create someone with such a fragile, unstable personality. So I'm just going to go through the sequence of events that occurred during her childhood. Hmm. So here we go. Two weeks old, she's put out to foster home. Seven years old, her dog gets killed in front of her. And her mother comes and takes her away from the only people who took care of her for seven years. When she's eight, her mother is committed to a mental hospital and foster parents take her in and that would be grace mckee that'd be the grace the best friend took her in and fostered her at nine she moved over to live with grace's mother and then moved back in with grace and grace's husband from nine to eleven she lived in an orphanage at eleven she lived with grace and grace's husband again then she lived with her cousins there were some distant cousins apparently that she moved in with and then at 12 she moved in with grace's aunt and if you can consider that. I mean, God, that's such a revolving door. And if that wasn't enough, when Marilyn was 12, she learned that her mother had been married uh, to a Mr. Baker and that she'd had two kids. That marriage had broken up and uh, her mother Gladys had moved away and moved to California and she did not get to keep the children, probably 
was a good thing she didn't keep the children and they stayed with their dad and so Marilyn had a brother and a sister that she didn't even know about until she was 12 and given the fact that she didn't even learn who her mother was when she was seven and never learned who her father was that is a really rootless kind of person you know who just has no connections until later and, and so she never was really able to lay down a sense of identity in her family so she had a sister named Bernice and Bernice uh, actually Marilyn ended up meeting her and they ended up having a relationship and got along pretty well doesn't sound like they're ever super close like sisters would be but that they had a good relationship and her brother Robert Baker he died at 16 which was before Marilyn ever learned about him uh, of TB so another family tragedy there and so she never got to know her brother TB that's tuberculosis correct correct tuberculosis which that was which was deadly at the time, by the way, and easily transmittable. And uh, tuberculosis is actually a very interesting disease that it's well worth reading up on because you can get tuberculosis of the spine, hmm. you can get tuberculosis in all different parts of your body, and it's a very interesting disease. And of course, it is the disease that used to be called consumption back during the uh, 19th century, 18th century, and it was considered a very romantic disease, like that romantic um, movement. It was considered very romantic, even though it's a horrible disease, frankly, and it often affects the lungs, and there's coughing, and people become very pale, and they're seen as looking very ethereal, sort of angel-like and above the earth, which made it quote-unquote romantic. But it's horrible because you're coughing up your lungs and often would cough up blood and not a nice disease. But anyway, that is the disease that her brother died of, according to my sources. And just for the record, uh, Bernice had children. So Marilyn ended up having nieces and nephews. I actually didn't follow up on exactly how many or who, but she did have. So there is there are descendant relatives of Marilyn, even though she doesn't have any direct descendants. Now let's add this. Her maternal great-grandfather died of syphilis, of dementia. So he, he mm. was basically insane from syphilis. Okay, that wasn't genetic, but he died of that. And that was part of the family lore. Her grandfather, because she only knew her maternal side of the family, she knew who her father was. Her maternal grandfather hung himself. Mm. Her maternal grandmother died in an insane asylum, and her mother was committed to an insane asylum. So regardless of whether this is in her DNA or not, it became part of her lore, part of her family heritage. And then what happened, when she was 13, she moved back in with Grace. At 15, Grace and her husband planned to move. They decided they couldn't afford to take care of her. Well, probably the husband decided that, because Grace had been pretty much into, uh, into Norma Jean. And so... That was when her marriage to her first husband was engineered, and she got married when she was 16. Wow. So that she wouldn't have to go back into the orphanage. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's enough. Yeah. As if it weren't enough, here's some more. Oh, my God. Um, I don't think this is going to become a surprise to anybody, but here we have the trigger warning kicking in. She was sexually assaulted, and she admitted it and said it. Now, according to the story that I've read or heard, she only talked about being sexually assaulted twice. And it seems hard for me to believe that someone who is so groomed to be presenting herself sexually, that may have been more than that. Because she certainly seemed to be very, very damaged in this area. But one of the reasons that she moved away from Grace to Grace's aunt was because Grace's husband, Mm. Doc, had sexually assaulted Marilyn when she was 11. She ran to Grace and told her, and Grace then moved her out of the house into... But she stayed married to this guy. And yeah. then she had to go back several times. Too, she, right? Yeah, she did. She went back. So who knows what happened there? She doesn't say yeah. anything happened. But then when she moved in with her cousins, when she was uh, 11, again, this is a bad year for Marilyn, or for Norma Jean, one of her older cousins sexually assaulted her as well. Mm. And that's one of the reasons she moved in to uh, Grace's aunt's house. Now, apparently, Grace's aunt was the one positive experience of her childhood 
really. And she is the one person who loved Norma Jean, did not have an agenda about Norma Jean becoming a star because Norma Jean kind of felt like, or both her mother and Grace, they'd really pinned something on her becoming a star because this, you know, through all of this, it never stopped about how pretty she was and how she was going to be great. And she's going to be great. She's going to be a star and, and so on and so forth. It never stopped. Whereas her aunt Anna just seemed to love her and Norma Jean said that she never, she never hurt her not once, hmm. which is a very touching statement for a very sensitive child that this person never hurt her. And she did love her very much, but she couldn't stay with her because Aunt Anna was older and she became ill and she just really couldn't take care of a young teenager. So that's one of the reasons she couldn't stay. And essentially that was her childhood. As she went through, finally, at one point, she when she was about 13, she developed, as we say. She developed right. a figure, and her clothes didn't fit her anymore, but there wasn't much money to buy her more clothes, so her clothes were rather tight, and it was very noticed. And all of a sudden, boys were whistling at her and following her and giving her attention, and to her, this was all good, which today is kind of feels uncomfortable and a little creepy. In those days, that was seen as a compliment. At least women were willing to accept it that way because that's how it was, that was what was going to happen. So what happened in high school when Marilyn, when Norma Jean developed and was getting all this attention, she had developed earlier out of nervousness and lack of confidence, a little bit of a stutter. Mm. And she couldn't say M. And so she became known as the M mm girl. So there was the play on the stutter, but it was also her deliciousness, apparently. Interesting. And she liked that. So she didn't consider that to be a... A dig. Yeah, not a dig or a bullying or anything like that. That was like in ninth grade. So she's in ninth grade, and she's known as the mmm girl with a whole bunch of M's. Which is interesting, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and now she writes this at, uh, that occurred around this time, maybe. And this is, like I said, right when she began to develop her figure. She talks about walking down the beach in her bathing suit. Apparently, the story is that the bathing suit she had was too small. So it's a yeah, tight sure. bathing suit. Okay. Yeah, okay. And she said, I was full of a strange feeling as if I were two people. One of them was Norma Jean from the orphanage who belonged to nobody. The other was someone whose name I didn't know, but I knew where she belonged. She belonged to the ocean and the sky and the whole world. Now, that might be... Uh, Marilyn Monroe looking back on her days as Norma Jean and foreshadowing what was to come in this story. Right. But I think it's an interesting thing that she is talking about that it's the time when she felt her body and felt proud of her body and felt that she was getting all of this positive acceptance and popularity that that's when she attributes this development of this new, cre this new creation or creature or person from within her. Right, and she feels, even though it feels good, it's kind of someone else. Yeah. Someone else is good, yeah. Right, it isn't It isn't her a development linearly from who she was. And it's very interesting that later when she became the very popular Marilyn Monroe, and seven years before her death in 1962, she actually legally changed her name to Marilyn Monroe. Until that point, she'd huh. still been Norma Jean. But she would, when she was working she would say, Marilyn would do this, or Marilyn should wear this dress, or she would reference herself in the third person, or this, this character, this aspect actress, of her yeah. as a third person, which is an interesting way. So it shows yes. that there's a great deal of complexity going on here, which, of course, we're not going to unravel, but we'll do our best to talk about it anyway. Anyway, I thought that that was a very interesting, a very interesting sort of perspective. And so she just basked in this attention. And it's just, I think it's just, this is so complicated and so crucial to this woman's development and to the development of so many women that this is both and. It's both a degradation to be viewed as an object and to be pursued in that way, yet at the same time, it is the power, the one power that women could easily and were expected to be able to wield over men to wield in the world at all, is their sexuality and their beauty. And so Norma Jean, as if you've listened to our previous podcast, in the same way that Marlena Dietrich did, her outer presentation and the way she looked became the most important thing to her. Even though both these women wanted to be good actresses, they had other ambitions, 
this was their talent, their pot of gold, the thing they could refine and be successful with. Whereas doing anything else was a great deal harder, often less successful. And when I say other things, I mean acting. I mean running a production company. I mean doing business, any of those things. They, there were so many obstacles that when you can have tremendous success doing a certain thing, as a human being, we're, we're not going to give that up. We're not going to turn that over. We're going to use it. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So what do you have to say about this uh, in terms of, I mean, there's so many points of view in the feminist world about women's sexuality, uh, if not sex work itself, although Marilyn did her share of that, presenting one's sexuality for consumption. You were very well spoken when you said it's it's both. And the idea that, that those kinds of attentions are both a means of oppressing women and the only way often to exert agency is to, you have access to more places if you're beautiful, you have certain privileges. And it's a very strange kind of dissonance. Like I completely respect the choices that Norma Jean made. Um, I mean, I think she did the best with what she could, and I don't think she could have made other decisions just based on her history. She's certainly one of those people that wouldn't have been able to live working most jobs. And so in a certain way, her mom's prophecy became fate. Yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating, but I I don't know if I have a specific feminist angle. There's that duality between the fact of your sexual availability and nature and power and everything is both uh, an oppression and a tool, I guess. Right. Often the only tool. The ambition to be a movie star really did take hold in Norma Jean. Now, whether it was just simply that she was inculcated and brainwashed into this, or whether it was something that connected to something that was that really was inside her and, and brought it out to life. I tend to think it's the latter. I don't think she was simply brainwashed. Despite her emotional fragility and her neediness, which came up over and over again, where she always felt the need to cling to people and needed uh, and was very fragile emotionally. She couldn't take much buffeting and she was very insecure. Despite that, I think that she, I almost say unconsciously knew who she was. She consciously created her character, but how did she come up with that? And so even though I think she got confused about who she was or who she could be, she listened to a lot of people, nobody else created the amazing creation that is Marilyn Monroe. And it did start in those days with her mother and Gladys sort of spoon feeding her this fantasy. But the thing is, if it becomes real, is it a fantasy? Right. It isn't. Now, if it had been somebody else who never made it, Okay, then it's a fantasy. And in this case, it, it is it is hardcore reality that she was a star. Maybe that's destiny. I don't know how those things work. I don't know if that exists. But certain people seem to be kind of shoved from behind right into where they need to go. Now, she she worked really hard. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about her career and her everything. Her career. And, and I won't go into details on it because it's very complicated and there were a lot of people involved. And that just would be too boring. It's better to read that in a book. But... She knew that she did not, like you said, want to be a housewife. So she gets married. The name of her husband was James Doherty. Doherty, I guess they might have called it, said Doherty. I'm not sure the pronunciation. And so she became Norma Jean Doherty. And he was uh, about five years older than she was. So they met when she was about 15, I believe. And so he was about 20. And so, she, yeah, so she was 16. He was 21 at the time of their marriage. And according to the stories that uh, he tells in particular, he was maneuvered into the marriage. You know, not that he was complaining, you know, saying, oh, I didn't want to marry her, but she was uh, sort of pushed on him because basically Grace said, hey, get married or go back to the orphanage because we're moving away and we can't afford to take you. And you've got about another six months before you turn 16. You've got a chance here. Here's Jim Doherty. He's a nice guy. Norma Jean already knew him. She'd known him for a year or so. You know, he'd given her and her friends rides to school and things. And he was just kind of a regular 1940s kind of guy. And At least he wasn't a monster. No, he's very lucky. Yeah, in that, in that regard. So basically they were taken on dates and she was adoring to him. And I think she did her best 
along with Grace to maneuver him into marrying her because she didn't want to go back to the orphanage. He, I mean, I think he was looking forward to it. She's pretty. She's very pretty and she acted very willing and love, lovey and everything. But what happened is once they got married, Norma Jean went and started working in the wartime industries because this was in the 40s during the war, World War II. And she, first of all, she worked, she did parachute packing. <laughs> and then she did something like glue gunning, like spraying with a glue gun. That must have been really nasty. Probably. And I'm sure she didn't enjoy it very much, but she was earning some money and her husband Jim had gone away to the war. Now, mm. she had never been the kind of wife he wanted because remember, this is the 40s. She takes his name, she bears his children, she stays at home, she cleans the house, she makes the meals, she manages the household. This is a good wife. This is the wife that he expected to have. Uh, a sexually willing wife and so forth. Apparently she was very erratic. She did not clean the house. <laughs> she took a lot of baths. <laughs> she was not a good cook. Now she did go out to work in the wartime industries, which was certainly acceptable at that time. She also had money and then she got his money from the work he did his because stipend. okay yeah because he was in the armed armed services but he would be gone for long periods of time and she took that as an abandonment even though any reasonable person and probably even she would say well it wasn't his fault he had to go because he was drafted it didn't matter there was an abandonment there so that created a big crack in their relationship but really what created more of a crack i think from what i've read is that he did not hold with her having ambitions to have a career and she was not good at being a housewife and didn't want to do it. Even though she would kind of say she did to keep things nice and to not be confronted. And to be a good woman. Right. Because she was expected to be a good woman. And so while he's gone, she goes out and she starts getting modeling jobs. Hmm. And she's for photographers. Now, at this time, she has brown hair, brown curly shoulder length hair, and she hasn't had the plastic surgery yet. She had a little bit of just touch-ups of her face later. Basically, she had a little bump on the end of her nose, probably nothing that that's too obvious, but enough that, you know, if you're going for transcendent beauty, you knock those little things out. And it's funny because Marlena Dietrich had the same thing. She had a weird like kind of upturned bump, much more noticeable in profile that she had to have taken off. And it did look better, I have to say. (laughs) And uh, she also had her hairline up at the top, had electrolysis done to raise her forehead and make her hairline a little further back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And apparently she also had a little implant in her chin that just rounded her chin just a little bit more so it wasn't just quite so pointy. Very interesting. I tried looking at the original picture and then it her she does look more beautiful when she's Marilyn but you know it was like my eye is not sharp enough to pick out that detail but before all that happened she was still beautiful and winsome and charming and so she did a lot of photography she traveled with a particular photographer and apparently it sounds like this guy was her first love affair outside her husband it's a very interesting situation that you'll notice this pattern in her life is that as she's moving out of a relationship, she moves into another, they they overlap. Yeah. And that's a very particular pattern that she has where she can't not be in, be anchored in some kind of relationship. So she um, began having an affair with this guy. And I don't think she ever thought that she wanted to marry him or anything, but she loved photographers because they're taking, they're, taking pictures of her, making her feel special, making her look beautiful, making her feel beautiful. And they did a lot of traveling around and there were a lot of photographs. Well, when Jim comes back and he hears about this, he's not happy. He does not like this at all. And it's then this is the interesting thing. Okay, here comes a subversion that's going on. So even though she puts out this front that she's malleable and she's sweet and she's docile, she just still keeps doing what she wants to do. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's what happens. And he goes away and she's doing it again. <laughs> That's probably part of what makes her seem so erratic and like right. projection doesn't match her actions. Right. She's not she's not willing to um, to give in, but she also is not confrontive. So she's giving with one hand and taking away with the other, if you will. So here, it's just a little something I wanted to read. So she has a really regular work as a model. Photographers really like her. She's very, she just because she's in love with the camera. She loves being photographed and she's so good at it. She has 
complete confidence, no nerves at all, and the camera then loves her in return. And so she was, she was going around trying to get into acting, trying to get a contract, trying to get a screen test, but at the same time she continued modeling. And at one point she uh, gets involved in the very, very famous photo shoot that you probably are aware of, where she posed nude for a calendar. Mm. Actually, I don't know if I've seen that. We'll have to oh, look it up after the show. Oh, you totally have to see it. Maybe we can put a link for people because she did, and it's compared to something today, a lot of things. It's very chaste. I mean, she is nude, but she's on her side. So you mostly can see her breast and you can see, but it's very voluptuous. She's lying on red velvet, like wavy mm-hmm. red velvet with her very, very pale skin. And at this point, her hair is no longer brown. It's blonde. It's like a, but it's like a, a nat- yeah, like a golden blonde, a natural blonde. She's not platinum yet. And she's lying there and there's very, very voluptuous, sensuous poses that she does. And she got 50 bucks for the, the session and it went out on this calendar and that was just another job to her. She had no shame. It wasn't like an embarrassing thing for her. She had no problem being nude. And then subsequently, she finally started getting noticed. She got in and got a screen test at the uh, movie studio and her career began to break. Now, very interestingly, when she had her screen test, everyone's going, oh my God, she's amazing. She's, She's fantastic. But the head of the studio, Richard Zanuck, who ran the studio, couldn't stand her. Huh. Thought she just didn't see any, not sexy, not pretty, not interesting, not good, not funny. He did not like her and he never wanted to sign her. And throughout her career at that studio, even when she was a big moneymaker, he didn't like her at all and didn't think she was any good. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so it, it, that perspective, she was always up against that obstacle in that perspective as well. So she ended up finally um, beginning to break into... Hollywood. And again, I won't go into all those details. There are a lot of things about screen tests and contracts and cancellations and so forth. And that's something that would be good in further reading. Let's talk about her name. Norma Jean uh, Doherty did finally get a short-term six-month contract with the studio. And so as usual, they called in and they decide, they would decide like what her hair would look like and what her clothes would be and, and what kind of movie she'd go into. And they also would decide what your name would be, if your name was acceptable or not. And they said, no, you, this name, Norma Jean, get confusing the people, two names. And then Doherty, well, how do you say, is it Doherty? Is it Doherty? Is it Dofferty? I mean, you know, they said, can't, no good. And so I said, what do you want to change it to? And she said, well, my mother's maiden name was Monroe. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, Monroe. And he said, you know what? You look a lot like a an actress named Marilyn Miller and we'll put a link into hmm. uh, to the Wikipedia page for Marilyn Miller so you can see her because if you see her she's a platinum well very maybe platinum blonde but very blonde very small pretty features Marilyn Miller was born in the very late last decade of the 19th century she died in the 30s at some point she was pretty young she died like she was 37 when she died hmm. so yeah, you know, multiple husbands, drug and alcohol addiction. Classic Gee, very Hollywood. sounds like uh, <laughs> like what happened to poor Marilyn Monroe. And so they they picked Marilyn, and so it had a nice they had a nice uh, alliterative quality. Right. Also, Marilyn uh, in this story I read told them about her name in high school as, as the, the mm girl. Mm girl. Name. I was wondering about that. Yeah, and they're like, ooh, okay. Mm. M's. M's, lots of M's. Delicious. And by this time, she had lost her stutter, so that wasn't an issue anymore. Right. The confidence came to her. So she went in and had screen tests and so forth. But do you want to see the very first appearance of Marilyn Monroe in film? You want to see the movie. You want to take a look at the movie. Scudda who? Scudda hey. <laughs> The biggest reason for referencing this is just so you can say the name yes. on air. So Scudahoo Scudahay is on YouTube. You can see it there. Again, I think we can put a link to it. And some really nice commenter at the bottom put exactly what minute Marilyn Monroe shows up. <laughs> nice. And what's interesting when you watch it is that you have to be eagle-eyed because it's a scene where, um, this is a film where Natalie Wood, if you know who she was when she was a little girl, she stars in it. Mm. And 
it's a, I don't know, it's, it's not a very interesting movie, so I've never even watched it. But they're standing there talking, and what you want to do when you're looking at that minute is keep your eye in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, and you will see a blue dress appear and walk down, and then right as the blue dress is exiting to the left, she'll say, Hi, Rad! <laughs> and you get a, the briefest glimpse, like a nanosecond glimpse of her face right saying it so you if you're if you're a real diehard Maryland fan you can you can see that that didn't get her very far but uh, where was her husband during all this oh she's divorced by now okay they divorced yeah during this period she's trying to build her career so she becomes known as one of the party girls she goes to the mansions of the Hollywood moguls and she delivers food and she sits at the table and looks decorative and you know she's pretty low on money uh, even though she's still doing some modeling and and it's very murky here about who she's sleeping with but come on you know some people she she wants to put out that she's very innocent and she wants to put out no I didn't ever sleep with anybody at this point I don't believe it because I don't see how that's possible but that was that was the way she got to meet people. And she eventually met this man named Johnny Hyde. And Johnny Hyde was an agent. He was a very short, kind of hairy little, not terrifically attractive guy. He fell crazy in love with Marilyn Monroe. And she was not in love with him, but she, she lived with him or had an affair with him. And I'll give her this, again, to compare her to Marlene Dietrich, she was not uh, profligate in her sexual behavior. She... Hmm. You know, she might have reasons to sleep with people. She might be attracted. She might feel she needed them. But she was, she was very choosy. And Johnny treated her well, and he he loved her deeply. He wanted to marry her. And she refused to marry him. She wanted a career. This is what she wanted. She knew that if she married this guy, she would be even more of a laughing stock than she was for being a buxom blonde. At some point during this period, her hair begins to transition into the uh, light platinum color that she had later. He just bent over backwards. Johnny Hyde, he was dying. I forget what he had, but he was maybe tuberculosis oh. or something. Oh. But he was dying, uh, and he knew he was dying. And he wanted her to marry him, and he would leave her his money. And basically, she knew that if she did that, she would have no career. It was never going to happen. So she, was, she wasn't going to marry him. What she said was, I don't love you, so I would never marry somebody I didn't love. But we know she married Jim Doherty. <laughs> she didn't love him, so that's not true. Right. <laughs> so anyway... Yes. Um, this guy, he did die, but before he died, he did her a lot of good, and he helped her get into some of her early films where she started making a mark. Let's see, what can I say about her uh, during this period, just to wrap it up? First of all, she never stopped studying. Apparently, she was extremely serious. She was a, an autodidact who wanted to improve her mind and improve her talents, and she was really very serious, but she also touchy and defensive about it because people would laugh at her that this dumb blonde would have the gall to think that she could be an intellect or that Mm. she had an intellect of any sort so that was a pretty rough situation yeah it was pretty pretty cruel but she did study she studied voice she studied acting and she ended up getting an acting coach named natasha Lytus. and natasha fell deeply in love with her and marilyn was not a lesbian and did not return any feelings for her and was not interested in having sex with her. And so that created this huge tension because Natasha was completely besotted. And this is something you're going to see. People could really truly love her, but they also saw her as their meal ticket and their chance for fame and their chance for success. So she always became this sort of double thing and she could feel that. So it always made her very guarded and very vulnerable to feelings of betrayal when people were not purely one thing. That must have been really hard. I mean, I can't imagine anybody who's famous enough and is in that position where, unless you're really lucky, you have to double guess sort of right. people's motivations and like where their feelings come from, even if their feelings are genuine. Uh, yeah, if, if I weren't, could somebody love me even if I weren't rich? You know, mm-hmm. and that's true. That is a very, I mean, it's a true question. Right. I mean, think of all those romantic novels where the man... Right. Usually, it's the man. Yes. Has, well, has the car, has the castle, has the money, and he's good looking. Well, if he didn't have all that, would this romance ever be able to play out the same way? Would there be that for the reader? Come on. Come on. It's about the fantasy of the lifestyle. It really is. Yeah. It really is. So as time went on, 
this proved to be true in the case of Natasha. She glommed on to, to Marilyn and Marilyn needed her. I mean, Marilyn always needed somebody, somebody on set, somebody she could cling to, somebody that she felt would tell her whether she was right or wrong. And yet there was also the steel underneath where she never really let them completely take her over. It was almost like she used them as a foil to control the outer world because she would say, no, 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 I'm not going to act unless my coach is on the set. And it would be a way, and then every time she'd take a, do a take, she'd look over at the coach and say, did I do it? And this is what everybody is seeing. Oh, is she taking direction from that person? She's dependent on them. She's doing what they say to do. And my take on that is, is again, here's the subversion happening. Here's the person, she's so wily that she's using this person as a buffer between her and the director, between her and the, the power structure. Uh, one of the things the studios would have to pay this coach as almost as much as Marilyn was making because wow. they're going, Marilyn can't work if I'm not there. And it was a way for her to indirectly even though she didn't get the money herself, to manipulate and take power over the institution of the studio and over the people who are directing her and so forth. Now, if she'd been a stronger person, that wouldn't have been necessary. She could have spoken up for herself. But this was a very complex mechanism that I don't think that they were really able to penetrate and figure out that that's what was going on. They just saw it as Marilyn's dependence on this person that she's insecure about her acting and needs right and i believe she was insecure because she was always late even in her very early film roles she would still be late she would still come in late because she was so scared that she didn't look right that she didn't look good enough so all that time she wasn't being lazy she was spending the time examining her face or or taking a bath or trying to you know figure out her clothes or 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 going over her lines and i mean Mm. and apparently she was very famous for not being able to remember a line. Even one line, she couldn't remember and say it. But what a lot of people have said, and at least before she started taking drugs and alcohol, it sounds like it was very much fear and nerves. Anxiety. She yeah. would absolutely freeze, and it was so bad. It's hard to believe that somebody was that scared when they were that successful. And, and when she was so used to modeling and didn't have any issues with that. Well, the thing about that, I thought about that, yeah. see? She, if, 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 They'd had supermodels back then, like a like these very very famous models, like Imam and uh, Kate Moss. Kate or, Moss, yeah. right? Women who could make really big careers and have a lot of money and get a lot of fame from just modeling. I think she would have gone a completely different route. She would have been mm. a model. I think she would have been a lot more successful huh. and been a, and maybe even like not. successful in the sense of. Uh, healthily successful yeah, yeah. And, and maybe um set up her production company and had had been more successful because she would have been able to follow through because she, they even said even when she was at her worst and and was having a horrible time with the acting she could still model she'd stand for the photographers no problem huh no problem she she really really enjoyed it a lot and felt completely confident so i i think the problem was is that, that models at that time were kind of low-paid grunt workers there there were there weren't models that were famous really until the 60s with twiggy and i think her name was Susie Susie baker yeah anyway those two twiggy in particular just became a personality unto herself as a model so that people wanted to see her and then from there the idea of a model or a supermodel began to roll but not not in the 40s and early 50s so anyway, that was uh, how Marilyn began to, to break in was through Johnny Hyde and other, other people she began to sleep with. She also at this period had an affair with Elia Kazan, who was a, like the hottest director practically in Hollywood at this point. He directed movies like A Streetcar Named Desire, and he also directed that on the Broadway stage where it debuted. He directed On the Waterfront, East of Eden, gentleman's agreement so he was a very intellectual director very intellectual and very leftist mm. and there's a whole thing about huac and uh being uh, him naming names in front of the committee but mm. i won't go into that because that's outside our story here but that's during the red scare yes but, yeah interesting yes. yeah so they had an on and off relationship and Marilyn may have hoped that he was going to leave his wife and marry her possibly um but he never was going to do that or maybe she didn't i don't know they're various points of view on that one. But anyway, through him, 
she, there was, she had her first meeting with Arthur Miller, the playwright Arthur Miller, who would later become one of her husbands. And that's the, just for your reference, the playwright who wrote, to my mind, the best American play ever, The Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman. So she meets him and she is, they're enamored with each other. But Miller's married and he is not happily married, but he at least is not one of those guys who just goes, well, I'm, I'm unhappily married, so I'll just go with this uh, attractive woman who wants me. And Marilyn did everything she really wanted him because he's an intellectual. He was what she wanted to be uh, in the world of great art and great acting and in intellectualism. So she really fell for him. And what's very interesting, she's having this affair with Elia Kazan. And while they're in bed, she's talking about Arthur Miller. She oh, wow. put a picture of Arthur Miller above the bed. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of hilarious. That is pretty funny. So Miller, they met and they had sort of an intense connection, Connection, but he leaves and he goes back to New York. And it isn't until about five years later that they see each other again. Wow. She, I think she wrote to him from time to time, perhaps, but they did not. He was trying to work out his issues with his marriage. So I got to give him, got to give him props for that one. He was moral. <laughs> so at this time, she's trying to break into film. She's hoping Kazan will give her a role. She is hoping, she also hooks up with some of these other Hollywood moguls, hoping they'll give her a role. I didn't know this, but apparently she didn't have a, a job at this point, even though she might have done some modeling. So she found this couple and she told them that she was walking the streets and giving blowjobs in order for men to take her out for food. Now, I don't know if I believe that. To me, that really sounds like saying that she was beaten throughout her life. She would tell stories, similar kinds of stories that were later proven not to be true. So I, I kind of doubt it. She may have been, she may have been sleeping with various people that she knew. Right. And rather than accepting money, she may have accepted food and gifts. I, I believe that that was pretty common. She but, had sort of a romanticized, like wayfish type of thing that she liked to, yeah, have as yeah. part of her mythology. Right. Exactly. And so this couple. Uh, the, the Greens, not anybody f famous that we would know, they they were in the Hollywood group and they basically gave her a stipend and a place to live. And she kind of became wow. part of their family, which that's what she would do. She would like wiggle her way into a family. And then she was trying to get the husband for oh, herself. Yeah, yeah. But almost in all, in like she, but she would do this quote unquote innocently. Yeah. Like she kind of almost, it's like she was just so like a child, so focused on getting what she thought she needed. That it almost wasn't, it wasn't like a personal thing to her. Yeah. That she was breaking up a family or whatever. So it was really funny. This is a great story. So it's really funny is um, she's trying to get him to drive her home and come in. And, and he didn't go in. And, and so one day she goes to his wife and says, I forget what his the man's name is, but so-and-so is in love with me. And I'm in love with him and he wants a divorce. The wife says, well, if he wants a divorce... He, he can knows, tell me himself. Yeah, he knows my phone number, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Marilyn. <laughs> Marilyn. And, of course, he didn't at all. Uh, right. And they didn't get divorced. And he didn't sleep with her or anything. But they, they tried to distance themselves. But she had glommed onto them so tightly. That's kind of a nightmare. I know. It kind of is. So she's kind of like that a little bit. And she kind of reminds me of, in a very broad way, there's this movie called What About Bob? And it stars Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. And Richard Dreyfuss is a, is a therapist, and his patient is Bob. And Bill Murray is Bob. And Richard Dreyfuss is going to just go on vacation and go away. He's not going to be available to Bob. And Bob, like, flips out. And, and having been in therapy myself, I know the feelings. Like, oh, my God, you're not going to be available. What are we going to do? It's just like... But this movie, he flips out and he comes to the house and then oh, all this stuff happens where he's wiggling into the family and, and he's glomming on. And I thought of that when I heard this story. So uh, ultimately, she is able to start getting her own money. They're able to, to get to, to separate, to separate from her. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that it's clear that for Marilyn, money was never the issue. It wasn't like, oh, I want to do this to get money. Or she would manipulate people so she could get money. She just needed to get money so she could live and so she could continue studying. And that's what she really wanted. She wanted to buy records. She wanted to buy books. She wanted to study. She wanted to read. She would take acting lessons. Mm -hmm. And and for her, it was just the money was a tool to help her reach her ambition of being respected. And what I found very interesting is that she, she was saying, 
how she wanted somebody to respect her. I forget exactly, but someone turned her on and said, you know what you should read? You should read The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Carl Sandburg. Oh, yeah? Because it had just come out then. And so she read it, and she loved Lincoln. And she would have a photograph of Lincoln. <laughs> After her own heart. <laughs> yeah. My favorite president. My favorite dead guy. Um, so she loved Abraham Lincoln and looked up to him as a father figure, as a, along with Clark Gable. Abraham Lincoln and Clark Gable, father <laughs> figures for Marilyn Monroe. And so she pretty much adored, adored him. She had a photograph of him? Yep. That she, on the mantle or something? And somewhere, yes. I, Not over the bed, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be funny. So anyway, this is Marilyn in her very formative time where she's struggling. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about Marilyn's success, her career, her... Uh, two marriages to two very, very famous, world-famous men, and her demise. And then we're going to move on in further episodes. We're going to talk about, as I said, we're going to talk about Jane Mansfield, who was a follower. We're going to talk about Sabrina, who was the <laughs> British Jane Mansfield. Uh, we're going to talk She's about... amazing. Yeah, really. We, we liked her. And uh, who nobody seems to have ever heard of it unless... You were in England in the 1960s. and Or you watched The Devil's... Uh, Satan in High Heels. Satan in High Heels. Well, we'll talk about that. And then there's Deanna Doors, uh, Mamie Van Doren, and we may touch base on, on those two. And we're also going to go back and we're going to talk about the influences on Marilyn and talk about uh, Lana Turner, very big influence. I don't think we'll talk about Norma Talmadge because Norma Talmadge really wasn't an influence. She was just named after her. But we'll talk a lot about Jean Harlow uh, and also Betty Grable because Marilyn was, we'll talk about this next time, Marilyn was considered to be the replacement for Betty Grable because Betty Grable was getting to be 35, 36 years old and was getting to be too old. And they needed another blonde because you can only have one blonde <laughs> at a time. Really? <laughs> yeah. And, and the convolutions there. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. And, and thanks for all the listeners and any of the new listeners we got through What Should I Read Next? Oh, that's right. Yeah. What, I mean, we were posting this months after we were on the show and we... Uh, we hope it, we retained some of those people that checked out our podcast because we guessed it on What Should I Read yeah. Next? Yeah. But it's been, yeah, the response has been really exciting. And really fun. So, all right. We'll talk to you next time for more Subversion. <laughs> If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grim.